My sermon this morning uh, is not really a random thought. Well, maybe it is, but uh, it actually flows from last week's um, sermon. And I want to make a little caveat. We had an interesting uh, conversation, or Laura had an interesting conversation with uh, somebody from this church. Um, while I was preaching, um, they asked, oh man, that, uh, is Jordan talking about us? <laughs> And uh, the answer is no, I don't preach sermons uh, at individuals. In fact, uh, I, I told Paul, Paul was bothering me, as he does, about what my sermon is going to be about on, uh, on Monday or Tuesday, which is usually the day that I'm finishing my sermon. Um, and I told him I wrote one and didn't like it, so I need to write a new one. Because I don't preach a sermon that doesn't cut me first. If it doesn't cut me, then I don't think it'll cut you. And um, I'm using that metaphorically for anybody who's new. Um, but if you aren't leaving the church bleeding, the scripture hasn't done its work. The same thing is true of me. Um, and so the Lord's been convicting me uh, deeply lately and, uh, and uh, uh, bringing to light some of my own um, problems and some of the things that I need to work on and some of the things that, uh, some of the things that I see in the church around us, our, our own church and, and just the church as a whole in America. Uh, this sermon presupposes last week's sermon. So if you weren't here last week, um, uh, go to odcc.org and, and listen to the sermon there. Uh, it presupposes that. So in a nutshell, what last week was about was I, I don't think that faith is really deeply the issue that we have here in the church today. I think the issue that we have here today is obedience. Are we slaves of God or not. And if you say, yeah, we are, in keeping with the scriptures, in keeping what Jesus said, and with what Jesus has told us, then what is the evidence of that? What is the proof that you are a slave of God? Uh, it presupposes that, that you can say today, yes, I am striving with everything that I am to love God with everything. If that is so, what should I expect on the other side of obedience? If you are walking in obedience to God, what should I expect? Um, so there's a bunch of scripture today. I wanted to give it all to you. This is sort of my splashy title, Why Jews Pray Better Than Christians. Uh, these are all the scriptures. This is going to be our main one, Luke 18, 1 through 8. So this is kind of the one really to have in hand if you want to turn in your Bibles. Um, if you want to write these down. I'm going to give you the first one, but the rest of them, you're on your own. Right? Fair warning. All right. So if I am walking in obedience to God, what should I expect? What, what is available to me? John 14. I changed it from truly to verily because verily is a better word than truly. So Jesus says, verily, verily. So fun, right? Just say that, verily. Use that, in, use that in your everyday language more often. Verily, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. I think this is often used as a miracle text. Like, you're going to do greater things. Like, Jesus raised one person from the dead. You're going to raise 50. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. His works primarily were declaring God's glory. 
His works primarily were calling people to repentance. His works primarily were pouring into people's lives in such a way as to say to them, you need to follow this amazing God who is breaking into our reality and expanding forth his reign until, Jesus says, I come again and initiate that reign in its completeness. So the church should be doing greater works than Jesus did because Jesus is going from the Father and he is sending the Spirit to empower his people and by empowering his people, sending them, loosing them on the world. You will do greater works than me. And then whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask, and this is an incredible line right here, isn't it? If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, and then here's the travesty of the um, of the little these little things right here, the little headings we talked about last week. This is a little heading that breaks up verse uh, this verse glorified in the sun. If you ask me, I will not. I will do it. There's a little break there, and that's too bad because I love that he says again, "If you love me, you will keep my." commandments you will obey me there's obedience tied so obedience is circling this entire text this line that's so powerful if you ask in my name to the glory of god i will do it but it's circled by obedience you see that there but still even so if we're striving for obedience that's a powerful claim that jesus gives us Uh, the next text is in Luke, and this is kind of where I want to spend uh, some time here. It's page 877 if you're using the Pew Bible. 877 if you're using the Pew Bible. Jesus is with his disciples, and so these two texts kind of are similar. They run together, and Jesus um, says to his disciples, he tells them a parable in verse 1, to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. If I translated it really woodenly, there's a word that says it is necessary. So it is necessary always to pray and not give up. Don't lose heart. Don't lose enthusiasm. Don't give up. That's a powerful claim, isn't it? Now, obviously... um, Jesus is going to expand on this. And he expands on it by telling a little parable, a little story that's meant to get our our imaginations flowing. And he starts with a widow, which is about the the most vulnerable position you can be in the ancient world. It's still pretty vulnerable. You're a widow. You have no other recourse, no other family that's going to step in and help her. And she needs help. And so she goes to the judge. And the judge is the position of probably the most power. In, the world. in fact, to this day, if the Supreme Court says jump, the United States says how high, right? I mean, being a judge is pretty important. So the most vulnerable to the most powerful. Jesus says this story. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to that judge saying, give me justice against my adversary. Well, for a while he refused, but she wore him down. And all the husbands said, come on, that was kind of funny. I'll get in trouble for it later, but it was kind of funny. The Lord, uh, so the judge says to himself in verse 4, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she'll not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord says, so he says, he tells this little story. 
And the Lord says this, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day or night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them and speedily. That's another great passage, and it plugs really well. It's, it's along the same veins of that, of that John passage. Now, I should obviously note here that this is not us asking God for whatever it is that we want. We frequently do this. We ask God for whatever we want. We, we're struggling or striving, and, and we just sort of ask God for whatever we want. It's not asking for God whatever we want. It is, it is asking God to step in because we are in desperate need. If you are in a place of desperate need and there's no one else who can come to your rescue and you know that if you wear down a, 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 a person who doesn't care about anyone, you, you just wear down an individual to finally they'll give in and give what you... How much more, if you're in desperate need, will God show up and answer your prayers? Right? That's what Jesus is saying. And attached to that, Jesus says, I know that you're going to pray once and twice, maybe three times, and things aren't happening as quickly or in the same way that you want them to, to happen. God isn't showing up in the way that you want him to show up. And Jesus says, don't give up. Keep praying. Keep going. Keep fighting. I have two problems, and that's what I want to talk about today. The first uh, is the problem that I see in the church where people who presume on, there are people who, Christians, who presume on God who should not. And there are people who should presume on God who do not. (laughs) So you can't win. (laughs) There are those people who are calling themselves Christians whose life bears no evidence whatsoever that they are slaves of God. And yet they call themselves Christians. They should be more worried about hell than they should be about blessings. There's an interesting, there's an interesting thing. Um, it's particularly kind of an American thing. It's sort of spread a little bit, but it's particularly American. Uh, in the sense of recognizing or, 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 or thinking that the primary way of understanding God's blessing in the Christian life is materially. So you, you, you get a raise, you get a, a new this or a new that or whatever, and you say, well, God has blessed me with this. That's an interesting assumption. I was thinking about this because I, I found myself in a Christian bookstore, and as soon as I walked in, I was confronted by Joyce Meyer. And so it got me thinking about this, and her book is essentially how you can be blessed every day of the week. Um, what is Satan's main task? In life, what is his goal? Deceive, be worshipped. I think it's this to distract us. Are you easily distracted? I'm easily distracted. I'm easily distracted. I know you're easily distracted. I've sat in meetings with you. yeah, I'm easily distracted. I think that sometimes we think Satan, like Satan's goal is to get me to cheat on my wife and leave my family. Like Satan's goal is to get me to murder my boss at work. Satan's goal is for me to slay that goat on the altar at black mass at midnight or something. We, we take Satan as this sort of extreme. Satan doesn't have to do any of that. 
Your eyes are fixed on Christ. Laser pointed beam, you're fixed on Christ. And all he has to do is move you an inch to the left or an inch to the right. And that's it. You look at the life of Jesus, right? What is Jesus focused on? Jesus' eternity in his eyes every second of the day. He is not thinking about anything else but the glory of God and the breaking in of the kingdom of God and the proclamation thereof. That is all he focuses on all the time. And we have so much. And it is so easy to be distracted. What if all Satan has to do is to keep you entertained just enough not to read your Bible? Keep you just busy enough that you don't have time for worship? Keep you just just distracted enough that prayer isn't on your mind? What if all he has to do is move you an inch to the left or an inch to the right? It's far more dangerous, and that's what I see. When I see, ask the question, why is the church in America so sickly, so pale, so weak, so dying? It isn't because y'all are out there carousing. It's because you're distracted. And it is so easy to be distracted. And when we are distracted, our prayers are powerless. Because God is not interested in a distracted people. He's interested in a passionate, poured out people. A people whose mind and heart and life is evidently, evidently, you understand what I mean by this, right? Evidently fixed, fixed upon his glory. On the other hand, there are good, dear, faithful Christians who are striving after God. And they're meeting trial and temptation and tribulation. And they think to to themselves, what am I doing wrong? Well, nothing. Satan's not going to... God, put it like this. When things are going well, how desperate is your plea to God in prayer? When things are going really well, are you bleeding on your knees because you're like, God, I need you, God, I need you, God, I need you? Or is it when things are going really well that you're like, well, I'll get to God next week, right? If you are in the midst of trial, if you're in the midst of even temptation, If you're in the midst of that struggle, I don't want you to see yourself as a failure. I want you to see yourself as somebody who's on the front lines of kingdom work. Was the life of Jesus easy? Was the life of the apostles easy? No, I'm not talking about trouble that you make for yourselves. Some of you guys do that. I'm talking about real, honest struggles where Satan is arrayed his forces against you. And what should those Christians do? They should presume upon God for power. And what those Christians frequently do is not that. Because in your humility, you think to yourself, well, I shouldn't, this might be God's will, or maybe I just need to, God, you do your will, God, you do, and God will do his will. Believe me, you don't need to give God permission to do his will, right? I mean, he's going to do his will, 
And if you pray and God says, that's not the best, he's just not going to give it to you, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't pray to God and say, God, deliver me from this trial. God, open up the doors and do something new in the life of this person who I'm wrestling with. God, we want to see your power flow because we need help from you and only you can bring it. The Christian should presume more upon God. And the reason why I think the Jewish Christians and Jewish people we see in the Bible do it better than the Christian today, which is what I was getting at with that, that title, is that they understand covenant. And we don't understand covenant. Think about the prayers of the Bible, right? Moses prays and he parts the Red Sea. Elijah prays and the, 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 the clouds dry up. You should do that, Mark. It'd really mess with Alan some sometime. <laughs> I mean, Esther prays and, and saves a nation. Daniel prays and the mouths of lions are shut. Nehemiah is pouring out his heart to God and, and, and the king senses that, that there's something that he's struggling with and this pagan, godless king blesses the nation of Israel sending Nehemiah. Like, I mean, the power of prayer in the Bible is unhinged. It's crazy. And we can't possibly look at those characters and say they're special because the Bible makes sure that you know they're not. The Bible makes sure that you understand Moses kind of blew it. Right? And so what we should see in this is the power of covenant. What's the power of covenant? That when God comes into relation, the first time God shows up on the scene to build a relationship with a person and a following people, he comes to Abraham and he makes a covenant. He says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. He, he, he delivers his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it goes down through the centuries until we get to Moses. And then Moses, he expands that covenant. That covenant becomes a set of laws, of regulations. Like, here is how you live out this relationship that we have together. You and me, God and his people. And he says, he offers blessings and curses. The blessings, this is Deuteronomy chapter 28, Uh, Verse 1, if you're faithful and obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all the commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and then he extends a list of blessings. But, in verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all that he has commanded you and his statutes that I command you today, then all of the curses shall overtake you. Cursed shall be your city, cursed shall be your field, cursed shall be your basket, cursed shall be your bowls, cursed shall be the fruit of the womb, cursed shall be the fruit of the ground, and on and on. Because covenants have a dual partnership of both obligations and blessings. Let me put it this way. I can tell Emery today... You need to clean your room. And it's true. That room. As a greater power, I can command the lesser power, right? All the parents said, yes, amen, right? I can do that. God could do that. God could have stepped in the world and said, you'll obey me whether you like it or not. But out of his grace, he does not operate like that. Out of his grace, he says, if you will obey me and be my people, I will be your God and bless you richly. So I can say to Emery, if you go home today, if when we get home today, you clean your room, I will take you out for ice cream. 
That's good news, right? She didn't seem that excited about it. Usually she is. I thought for sure they'd get something, but the room is that messy. Even ice cream isn't enough. Sure. Yeah, if you clean your room today, I'll take you to ice cream. Now, if the room doesn't get cleaned, what happens? No ice cream, right? But if the room does get cleaned, <laughs> she's on that. <laughs> That's the part I got. And if I don't give her ice cream, even though we've made the covenant, we've made the deal, we've made the pack, we want you to call it what you want, what does she have the right to do? That's not fair. That's unjust. Because you said you would do this if I did this. Right? That's the relationship that God has with his people. He comes to them and he says, listen, I'm going to give you all of these. I'm going to give you this commandment. I'm going to give you this law. I'm going to tell you how to live your life in such a way that you can be formed after my image and my likeness. And I will bless you richly. And the Israelites then are able to impose that upon God. God, we have turned to you. Where is your help? You see that all the time when you read the Psalms. We read that here, the prayer of David, Psalm 17 that I read as, we, uh, as our call to worship piece. David says, God, come and vindicate me. How can he say that? He can say that because David says, listen, my feet have not left your paths. I have followed after you. And so God, do what you have promised. Christian, you have that same power. Now the blessings are different. God was building a nation as a nation to shine forth his glory and his power in material blessings in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there's something different because now we've been moved beyond the childishness of that and to the power and eternality of the spirit as seen in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had how many summer homes? How many cars? How much money in the bank? How secure was his 401k? Right? In fact, the Bible, as as Brian read, tells us that there was really nothing that made him stand out. And yet, Has anyone in all of history stood out more than Jesus? Is anyone more beautiful than Jesus? Is anyone more desirable or precious or worthy of being looked at with laser focus for an entire lifetime? Is there anything greater than Jesus? No. And he had none of those things. And yet he exuded the glory of God to the point of which the world said, we either have to kill this guy or we're going blind. And church, that is available to you. That is the power handed off to you. Jesus said, or Paul says, Jesus has put that gospel, that power in us, the jars of clay, that we might shine like stars in the world. And there are so many Christians who are living, I think, defeatedly when you should be living victoriously, powerfully. Not not in material, but in the glory of a life that looks like Jesus. The glory of a life 
that looks like Jesus. And that is available to us through prayer because we have a covenant with God. You remember Jesus? In fact, this is what we do every, and this is why communion is so very, very important to us. This is why we do it often in the middle of our services, why we focus on this. And when it's not in the middle of the service, it's because the whole service has been building to the communion moment because this is the moment where we remember Jesus. And Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Do this to remember me. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, remembering who Jesus was, is, and will be. The alpha, the omega, the power. And he is the covenant. Now we have a covenant that is built in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It isn't built in a set of rules and regulations. In the Old Testament, we could tell you how much to give to the temple. In the New Testament, Jesus says, be generous. Way harder. In the Old Testament, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And Jesus, love your enemy and bless those who persecute you. For the Lord your God allows the sun to rise and the evil and the good and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Jesus takes the rules and regulations and he expands them, moves beyond them, says now it is time for you to grow up in the power of the Spirit. It is time for you to see God in his fullness and in his glory. And that is what Jesus was to us. The vision of God that we can now emulate and live out in our own power because we have a covenant with God in such a way that we can talk about having confidence to come before God. See, there are Christians who have forgotten the covenant. You understand that, to free, and that, that's the problem with the Jews, right? As we read the, through the Bible, and you, if, if you ever start, you know, kind of First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, or First and Second Chronicles, and you, and you read these stories, or you read the prophets, again and again, the injunction came, comes against the Israelites. You have forgotten the covenant. You realize that it doesn't mean that they have forgotten that they have a covenant with God. They realize they they have. They haven't forgotten that they're Jews. They haven't forgotten that they're, they're the sons and daughters of Abraham. They haven't forgotten in the sense of a person who has amnesia, who forgets. They've forgotten like a drug addict who remembers that they have a family but only goes to the members of that family when they need something. And then they use and abuse and when they have enough, head on their own way. That is how they forgot the covenant. And there are Christians. There maybe even is a whole indictment against the church in America that that is where we are. That we come to God when we need. Not because we're his slaves. Not because he has the call on our life. Not because we're seeking his glory and his power in every moment, in every breath. Every breath, the thought of God. And we have other Christians, as I said, who lack the confidence, who lack an understanding that through the obedience that they are living out and striving towards, God is filling them with the spirit that you have such access to the power of God that the people like Moses and, and Elijah and, and Esther and Daniel wish they were in the position that you are in today. Jesus says, you will do greater works than I have done. Why? Because I'm going to the Father and I'm sending the presence of my spirit and he will indwell you in such a way that your prayers are connected divinely to the throne of heaven. That's the power the obedient Christian has to come to God on his or her knees and say, God, hear my prayer and with confidence know God will 
God will. I want this church, I want myself, I want to pray with power. I don't want every prayer of mine to be a yes, right? I want every prayer of mine to draw me closer to the will of God. I want every prayer of mine to draw me closer to the throne of God. I want to breathe the Spirit and exhale the Spirit. I want the prayers of this church to rise up, for God to hear a whole church full of people who through obedience and passion have prayers that are powerful and directed at the salvation and the justice is given in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, there are these passages that we have that are meant to strike us, wake us up. These are littered. I just picked four. I mean, we could be here all day as I read verses about prayer. For the eyes of the Lord, says the Apostle Peter, are on the righteous, and his ears are what? Open to your prayers. When your prayers go forth, God's ears are open to them. James 5, 16 and 17. The prayer of the righteous person has power as it is working. And here, uh, the, uh, James um, attaches the story of Elijah, right, who prayed that the rain would stop and, and, and they obeyed. Hebrews 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh. So this is Jesus, right? What did Jesus do? Such an interesting thing. Jesus offered up prayers. He offered up supplications with loud cries. When was the last time you had a loud cry in your prayer that you screamed out to God, God, help me. And tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about everything. Here's kind of a famous one. But in everything, how many things? Everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Because we are the ministers of a new covenant. A covenant that is not just built upon uh, the, 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 the works of stone, the tablets of stone that Moses received, but a covenant that is built upon the grace found in the Son of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. We are the ministers of a new covenant, Paul says. And so we have a very, very great hope. We're very bold Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Remember that story? Moses encounters God and his face is shining and they say, cover that mug up, we can't handle looking at you. We aren't like that. We don't don't cover our faces as we encounter God and he shines his glory out of us in the joy and power of the Lord and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Rather, we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed from the same image, from one degree of glory to the next. And this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So there are two Christians in this room today. There is the Christian who is not obedient to God. And before you think to pray for anything at all, you must repent. You must repent. 
and turn yourself over to God in such a way that you can stand and look God in the face and say, God, I was your slave. And then there's the other Christian in the room today who is encountering opposition and trial and having a very difficult time. The Christian who maybe is thinking to themselves, man, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know... I feel like I'm praying, but, but maybe I'm asking too much or too little or not enough. Or, or I'm praying and nothing is happening. And Jesus' word to you is found here in Luke 18. You ought to pray. It is necessary that you pray. Pray always and not give up. Not lose heart. Not give in. Not lose enthusiasm. But rather you grab hold of the promises that are given to you by Jesus himself. You grab hold of those promises and you ask God, God, you promised. God, act. God, we need you. God, help us. You ought to pray and not lose heart. The most dangerous thing to a Christian, aside from distraction, is losing heart. And so many Christians... Spent their whole life at a church, right? And they're struggling and they're striving and there's, you know, and there, there comes a point where finally they just say, you know what, I'm done and they walk away. They lose heart. They're at the end of the race. So frequently, I've, I've seen it happen with like, people who are like elderly like people and they, they're at the end of the race and they say, you know what, forget it, I'm done. They lose heart. Don't lose heart. It's interesting that in uh, verse eight, so as Jesus tells this parable of this, this, uh, this, this faithful widow, and this unjust judge, the judge who doesn't care about God and doesn't want to give the widow justice, but the, the widow wears him down to the point at which finally the judge says, fine, I'll just give what you ask. And if we can imagine, and you can imagine an unjust judge, right? Is that hard? <laughs> right? You can imagine an unjust judge. You can imagine some judge who doesn't care about what God says and doesn't care really about what man says, but rather will just do whatever he wants. And if you, you pester him enough, he'll give in to what you want. And if you can imagine an unrighteous and unworthy person doing something like that, how much more will God, if you come to him as his child, as his people, as someone who is obedient to him, and you can say with David, as we did at the beginning of the service from Psalm 17, my feet have not left your path. God, help. You think God won't? Now, it might not be the help you think. It might not be the help you're expecting because God, just, this is personal experience anyway, God never does what I expect. He just never does what I expect. So your eyes have to be open to his will. Your eyes have to be open to what he's willing to do. Your eyes have to be creatively looking for the mystery of God's power in your life. And you can't do that if you're distracted. Jesus ends that whole section with this line, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus wonders aloud to the people who are standing around him, When I come back, will I find people of faith? Will I find people who are walking in my paths? Will I find people who are desperate for my power? Will I find people who have not shrunk back, who have not bent the knee to the world, who have not given in, given up, to people who have not backslidden, to people who have not fallen away, will I find a people strong in that faith? Would he find you strong in the faith this morning? Because if he doesn't, that's not the end of the story. Today is the day of salvation.
Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day when you can get on your knees and say, God, we have wandered from your will and your way, and we are coming back to the old paths. Hear our prayer, and God will hear your prayer. This morning, as we uh, wrap the service up, uh, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never been saved, if you have never obeyed him in any way, we invite you to come forward. Our elders will be down front. They would love to talk with you, pray with you, baptize you if need be, that you might walk in the newness of faith because today is the day of salvation. It isn't tomorrow. Tomorrow, man, who knows? Today is the day. If you are a Christian who has wandered, you've slidden back, you've walked away, if you can't look God in the face today, repent. And if you need prayer, we are here. And if you're the Christian who I've mainly been speaking to, where you've been striving after God, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. But instead, pick yourself up. Draw the church around you because you aren't supposed to be walking this way by yourself, right? And let us go together as we strive after God in prayer because we are his covenanted people. We are the people bought and paid for in the broken body and the shed blood of the only Son of God. We are the people who are filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and sent by the Spirit. That is who we are. God will hear our prayers. So pray. Pray as never before. Let's stand as we sing.